Good morning. We greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We welcome you to the Lord's house as we begin a, a busy and eventful Lord's Day together. Let me make you aware of several things happening in the life of the body. If you're visiting with us today, we want to get to know you, and the best way we know how to do that is that blue card in the pew rack in front of you. If you'll take that now and begin to fill it out, drop it in the offering plate later in our service, that would be a huge help to us. We remind you that there are no Wednesday night activities this week, whether that be our congregational meal or our catechism class or youth group or adult prayer. That's so that you can uh, celebrate Thanksgiving with your family and friends. And so remember, no Wednesday night activities. But today, we're making sure to make up for that with an extra loaded Lord's Day. Following morning worship today, we will have refreshments in the fellowship hall, as we always do, followed by our outstanding Sunday school classes for all ages. If you're a visitor, you'll want to go to the intro to Woodruff Road class. It's meeting right there behind those... Uh, those the, those windows in the, the penalty box is what it's called. And then if you're a college student, home on break, our College Plus class is happening in the library. We would certainly invite you to that. Tonight at 6 p.m. we'll continue in our exposition of the book of Joshua. And then following that, as if this isn't enough, we're going to have pie and coffee after uh, evening worship. Bring your favorite homemade pie, drop it off at the gym door at 545 already cut. That would be a huge help to us tonight. On this day, November 19th, but in the year 1530, William Tyndall had translated the Bible into English, an astounding feat, and several thousand of his Bibles were seized by the Roman Catholic Bishop of London, who had one of the great names of all history, Cuthbert Tunstall. And the Roman Catholic Bishop seized thousands of Bibles because it was against Roman Catholic law for the laity to have a Bible. And they were burned in the yard of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. I stood at that spot four years ago. And Tyndall later, when he was caught by Archbishop Tunstall, he was executed for this crime, putting the Bible into the hands of the laity. Tyndall's translation brought the Bible into the common language of the people, English, and more than a few historians have noted that a whole nation who had never been able to read the Bible in their language now did so daily and with great joy. More than anything else, the accessibility of a personal copy of the Word of God sped the Reformation all over the British Isles. Well, from 1530 until today, English speakers have had full, easy access to the Word of God in their language. Today, the Sovereign Lord is going to be speaking to you in His Word, in His written Word, in the reading and preaching of the Word, the same in Sunday school, the same tonight in our evening worship. Drink it in. The Scriptures are the living Word. They're the sword of the Spirit which cut to the very heart. Any change or substantive growth in maturity will only come through one vehicle. As you take in the Word of God, there is no other way. And so prepare now to use your Bible this morning and to hear God speaking in it.
Lord calls you to worship him through the words of Psalm 57. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches under the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Indeed, let's begin to exalt our God by taking our Trinity Psalter hymnal. Turn to page 181 as we stand and sing, Now Thank We All Our God, hymn 181. morning we do not gather as a civic group or a political organization. We gather as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that church that has believed and confessed for the last 2,000 years the exact same doctrines. Today there will be well over a billion Christians on the globe who will use this creed, the historic Apostles' Creed, as their common confession of faith. Let us join our voices now with theirs. Christian, what do you believe?
take your copy of God's Word now or the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you and turn to Proverbs 11 for our Old Testament reading. Proverbs 11, reading the first 11 verses, you will notice in the wisdom of Solomon the sharp antithesis, the sharp distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. It's been that way forever. It will always be that way, even all through eternity. This is God's holy and errant word. Pay careful attention now. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it's overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Your word is a lamp to my feet. Please be seated. The wisest man ever, Solomon, the son of David, tells us that it is exceedingly wise and also prudent to give as an act of worship. Listen to what he writes in Proverbs 3. Honor the Lord, that's an imperative, from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we have this week, as even our whole nation does, gratitude and thankfulness on our minds. Enable us now, as an act of worship, to demonstrate our thankfulness to you for opening your hand and blessing us with all good gifts. Enable us to demonstrate that by our generous giving. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please join with me as we lift our prayers up to the Lord. Let's pray. We humbly and reverently approach the throne room of God in heaven by the help of the Holy Spirit and through the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, you are the one and only true and living God, the eternal and everlasting sovereign over all creation. We reverently and fearfully adore you, the only God, transcendently majestic and holy, self-existent, self-sufficient, infinite, and eternal, having all attributes in perfection in and of himself. You are the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, and from whom proceeds every good and perfect gift. You are the word of truth, the only potentate, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Your infinitely perfect attributes are far beyond our finding out and understanding, for who in the heavens can compare to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? Among the gods there is none like you, Neither are there any works like your works, for you're, you are great, and you do us wondrous things. You are God alone. As heaven is high above the earth, so are your thoughts above our thoughts, and your ways above our ways. From old you have laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. They shall perish, but you shall endure. Your years have no end. You are God, and changeth not the everlasting God, the creator of all that is, even to the ends of the earth and to the vastness of that, that which exists beyond the furthest stars. You are sovereign over all things. Nothing comes to pass outside of your will. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom from generation to generation. You doeth according to your will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay your hand or say to you, what? are you doing or why all power is yours both in heaven and on the earth we look to the throne room of heaven and lift our praise and adoration and worship up to the one and only true and living god the triune god the father the son and the holy spirit we praise you with human hearts and lips that are defiled by our sins in thought word and deed when we look toward the throne room to the king and our lord we must cry out, Woe unto us, for we are undone. We are deserving of nothing except your wrath and condemnation. We can do no good in and of ourselves. All of our actions are serving, self-serving and mean. Only you can see the intents of our heart with its blackness of filth. All of our sins are ever before you. Against you only have we sinned and done evil in your sight, that you may be found perfectly just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Have mercy upon us, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out our transgressions, wash us thoroughly from our iniquity, cleanse us from our sin, purge us with hyssop, and we shall be clean. Wash us with the blood of Christ, and we shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from our sins, and blot out our iniquities. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew steadfast spirits within us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, and uphold us by your generous spirit. That our tongues shall sing forth your praise, and, and uh, sing aloud your righteousness. 
As your children, we journey through a foreign and hostile land that is not our home. We give you thanks for the rich blessings of this body of Christ, the blessing of our adoption into the covenant family, and the assembly of the saints together in prayer and worship and feeding upon your word, and the fellowship of the saints for encouragement and care. What a true blessing to come together each Sabbath day, morning and evening, to rest from the strife and struggles of the world, to be with our true brothers and sisters in Christ, unified under the word preached and taught, singing your praises and lifting our prayers up to you. We give our thanks for the abundant means of grace poured out upon us each Sabbath day. And now, Father, we bring our supplications to you, for we are needy children. And you, O oh Lord, are our faithful and loving and generous Father. You have told us to be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our requests be made known to you. And the peace that only you can give will guard our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray for the expansion of your kingdom throughout the earth, that your word and the gospel would be spread to every people in every tongue, that in due time all the elect would come to know of your great love and grace and mercy, that you would surely draw to repentance and faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. We pray for Christ's soon return, that every knee will bow down before him and will confess his name as that name above all names. Lord, we pray for the many missionaries that we have sent out throughout the world that we support both in finance and in prayer. We pray that you would gird them up with boldness and power and perseverance to be faithful, to preach the word of God to all that will hear. We pray that you would give them all necessary provision as they labor in the field, and that your spirit would make their preaching both powerful and effective to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that have not yet heard or not yet believed. We pray for the afflicted and infirm and struggling among us, both those in this flock and for the family members and friends that we have. We pray for your mercy and care, for relief from pain and for healing. We pray that you would strengthen and encourage, that you would draw each nearer to Christ, give them peace, comfort, trust, knowing that they are in your loving arms, and we pray that you would give them perseverance throughout their struggles. Lord, we are thankful for the recent births and for all the children in our families at Woodruff Road. We do pray for the many ladies bearing children in preparation for birth, asking for strength and good health, both for the mothers and the babies. We pray for the parents at Woodruff Road in the nurture and training of their covenant children, that they would be diligent in teaching the doctrines of our faith and that the children would be drawn to saving faith in Jesus Christ in their early years, that they would never know a day when they did not call upon the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, as we prepare for the preaching of your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, drawing our full attention to the word preached, that the Spirit would anoint the preacher's lips, that your word would be preached with accuracy and clarity, with boldness and power, that the lost would be saved, and that your people would be drawn nearer to Christ and be strengthened in their faith. Lord, we lift these prayers up to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Amen. Please take your Bible once again and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 for our New Testament reading and stand as we reverence the Word of God. 
1 Peter chapter 4, reading verses 3 through 6. This too is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Give careful attention now. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it is strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We prepare for the hearing of the word. Take your Psalter hymnal and turn to hymn 531 as we sing Nearer, Still Nearer. Hymn 531.
just a moment ago, we confessed in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus will come to judge the quick and the dead. All Christians everywhere believe this. That's why that statement can be included in such a broad confession and faith as the Apostles' Creed. But we always need to ask the question, what are the texts that this is based on? We should not believe or confess any doctrine that we can't point to in Scripture and say, there, there's the text that teaches this doctrine. And so I hope you'll open your Bible to 1 Peter 4 because we will look at one of the hundreds of texts where we find the last judgment proclaimed. In 1 Peter 4, if you've not been with us before, our, our practice on Lord's Day mornings is to preach consecutively through New Testament books. And so we're doing that in 1 Peter. By the way, we've just about finished laying out our schedules for 2024. And so in 2024, we will, God willing, continue to preach through 1 Peter and then go to the most logical next place, 2 Peter. And then after that, the next most logical place. The Gospel of Matthew. That makes sense, right? So that's what we will be doing for the next few years. And in the evenings, if you're here tonight, and I hope you will be and keep the whole Lord's Day holy, tonight we'll continue in our exposition of the book of Joshua. We're in Joshua 7, which is a profound text teaching us much about the nature of our hearts. But then in the coming year, after we finish Joshua, we will look at the life of Solomon and then the life of Elisha. But what Peter is going to testify, and I hope you're looking at verses 3 through 6 in 1 Peter 4, Peter is first of all going to talk about the current world, life as it is, and he's specifically going to tell you what unbelievers think of believers. Didn't you, wouldn't you like to know what unbelievers think of you? It's spelled out by inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. And by the way, I will tell you before we dive into this, most Christians are deluded when they think of how they're perceived by unbelievers. And so the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Peter, will make it very clear how unbelievers view you and me. And then Peter will segue with that into the future reality for unbelievers, namely the last judgment. And so let's roll up our sleeves, gird up our minds, and let's seek the help of the Lord now as we prepare to hear his word. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word, Chase distractions from the evil one and the world and even our own flesh far from us. Silence any voice but your own so that we may hear your word and then also do your word through Christ our Savior. Amen. Look at 1 Peter 4 verses 3 and 4. Peter will remind you that unbelievers are clearly known by their actions. And he picks out three distinct actions, and it's fascinating how relevant and current these are. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 3 and 4. He says, unbelievers are known by sexual sin, lewdness and lust. They're known by substance abuse, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. And they're known by idolatry, false worship. Now, this catalog of sins is not at variance at all with all the other listings of sin. For example, Peter's fellow apostle Paul uses the exact same sins in Romans 13 and Galatians 5. And all these listings, anytime you find one of these listings of what the unbeliever looks like, what he acts like, I want you to notice what's always front and center. Sexual sin and substance abuse. Because these were 
the predominant sins of the culture 2,000 years ago, and they are still some of the most life-dominating sins that hold people in bondage of our culture. Two weeks ago, I was having a very casual conversation with a woman, a woman who's a confessing Christian, a member of another church in town, and she confessed to me, she didn't see anything wrong with this, she confessed that she goes through a bottle of wine a day. And I said, is that like a small bottle or a big bottle? She said, you know, a normal-sized bottle of wine. And I thought, yeah, nothing's changed in 2,000 years. And then notice as well what Peter speaks of, the mark of the unbeliever, sexual sin. He talks about lewdness and lust. This week you probably saw that the professor of ethics at Princeton University, that university that was founded 300 years ago for the education and training of Presbyterian ministers, the professor of ethics, Peter Singer, now is saying, we shouldn't be condemning bestiality. We think it has some great benefits for society. This is on top of the rampant pornography, a multi-multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. And so what we find is when Peter speaks of sexual sin and substance abuse, same old, same old, 2,000 years ago. So typical were these practices in Nero's Roman Empire that Peter was living under and writing in, that if you did not engage in these things, you were thought to be strange. Perhaps you've even had these sort of comments before. What, our lifestyle isn't good enough for you? Do you think you're better than everyone else? And these issues aren't just 2,000 years old. They're 4,000 years old. Go back another previous 2,000 years. Our culture is just like the men of Sodom who in Genesis 18, when Lot urged them not to engage in homosexual perversion, said, this fellow, speaking of Lot, this fellow came here as a visitor and now he wants to judge us? Peter says, you escaped such a lifestyle. Peek back at 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter tells how you escaped such a lifestyle, one of idolatry, sexual sin, and substance abuse. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, you were called out of darkness. The world I just described, Scripture says, is darkness. You were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, what Peter does, though, in our text, in verse 4, is he does something amazing. He gives you a deep insight into the thoughts of a huge class of people. Now, you will look at people and think, I, you'll see somebody who seems deep in ponderous thought, and you'll think, I, I wonder what they're thinking. Peter tells you exactly what they're thinking. Look at verse 4. This is amazing. By the Holy Spirit. This is for your self-awareness. So buckle on your seatbelt. Here's what they're thinking. Unbelievers think you're strange. The Holy Spirit says so in verse 4. You're the butt of their jokes. To them, you are a fool for Christ's sake. They're mystified by prayer, worship, Christian ethics, the Lord's Day. They cannot fathom why anyone would refrain from substance abuse. Look at verse 4. They can't figure out why you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Because they have no interest, the lost man, no interest in self-denial or self-control. And eventually, what is in their heart and in their mind does spill out of their mouth. Look at verse 4. They do finally speak evil of you. That may be happening in your office tomorrow. Oh, they may wait until you go down the hall 
to speak evil of you, but they do. Verse 4 says so. Peter has already warned his readers. You can see it in chapter 3, verse 16, just across the page. They will defame you as evildoers and revile your good conduct in Christ. In the first century, what Peter is telling us is in the first century, the unbelieving powers were so put off by Christians that they engaged in violent, systematic persecution of them. Christians today can be incredibly delusional, thinking they're loved by the world. Believers often succumb to the fiction that family members and neighbors and co-workers find them reasonable and wise. And you're thinking, yes, I'm looking forward to Thursday when my family gets together and we'll have a Thanksgiving dinner. I know they're not believers, but they all love me. No, they don't. They think you're strange. And if we reach to the depths of their being, They despise you. Peter knew better than to fall for this delusion. He was there in the upper room on that Monday, Thursday night, listening carefully to Jesus' farewell discord. Peter heard Jesus say these words in that upper room from John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When Peter makes this analysis in our text, in chapter 4, verse 4, it's completely in sync, aligned with Jesus' teaching. Why would Peter tell you this? Does he tell you this to bring you pain? No. He tells you this so you can be armed. So you'll not be surprised when you're mocked and spoken of in demeaning, hateful ways simply for following Christ and living in Christian morality. Now, there's a segue in our text. I want you to look carefully at the transition from verse 4 to verse 5. Peter's talking there in verse 3 and 4 about unbelievers. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter's mind runs to the looming punishment for lost men. Now, look at that logical transition because this isn't, this doesn't, it's not foolhardy. It's not random. It's very wise. It's the next step in Peter's thought. Verse 4, he's talking about the lost man. And verse 5, he now talks about the looming punishment for lost men. And Peter brings up one of the hundreds of texts in Scripture that our doctrine of the last judgment is based upon. Verse 5, look at what Peter says. They will, it's an assurance, they will give an account to someone, to him. He's speaking of Christ who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, this is the second time in 1 Peter that Peter has raised the doctrine of the judgment. He did so in chapter 1, verse 17, but now he returns to this vital topic. And I want you to roll up your sleeves with me now and think about this idea of the last judgment. Especially unbelievers have a vested interest in never thinking about the last judgment. But both believer and unbeliever ought to recognize this is one of the cardinal doctrines of scripture think for example of the great meta narrative of scripture the great big story of creation then fall then redemption then consummation at the last judgment the last judgment is one of the great four pillars of the meta narrative creation fall redemption last judgment And so walk with me through the core understanding that a Christian have of the last judgment as you stare at verse 5. 
First of all, there's the fact of judgment. When Peter says of the unregenerate, do you see it there in verse 5? They will give an account. He's simply echoing what all the Old Testament writers before him said. David, the psalmist, in our favorite congregational singing psalm, Psalm 98, David asserts that the Lord is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness, he'll judge the world. Peter had sung this psalm a couple thousand times probably. And then think of Daniel. Peter had read this scores of times. Daniel spoke of the judgment in vivid pictures. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel paints the picture this way. I saw his thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, closes out his wisdom book, Ecclesiastes, with this admonition. Fear God, keep his commandments, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. Peter had heard those words taught in his home, in his synagogue, and then it ramped up because when Peter spends three and a half years with the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus constantly was talking about the last judgment. And in the most comprehensive passage anywhere in the Bible about the last judgment, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus himself describes what will happen at the last judgment. He speaks of his return in glory with angels where he assigns to each man their eternal destiny based on what they've done with him. That's the fact of judgment. Think with me about the necessity of judgment. God's character that he's just, altogether just, requires it. Didn't Abraham cry out, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This it's, judgment is a necessity to right all the wrongs and injustices left unresolved. When we were in Las Vegas, we had a woman in our congregation who had been horribly abused by her dad. And her father died while we were there she came to me and she was so bitter. And she said, Carl, is he just going to get off scot-free? He's never done a day in jail. He's never paid a cent. And I said, this is the comfort of the doctrine of the last judgment. Where God will right all wrongs on that day. Think of what the purpose of judgment is. The purpose of judgment is always, as in all things, to glorify God. First of all, judgment, the last judgment, glorifies his grace. For on one hand, it shows his grace in the acknowledgement and the welcome of the elect. At the same time, the last judgment glorifies his justice in punishing forever the wicked and the reprobate. Who will be the judge at the last judgment? Peter hints at it. Look at verse 5. The Bible teaches that the judge of all mankind will be the divine human mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Peter says, him who is ready to judge. We confess this every time we use the Apostles' Creed when we speak of the return of Jesus as coming to judge the quick and the dead. And our Lord was very clear that he would be the judge. He didn't try to be euphemistic. He said so in Matthew 25 in the clearest, lengthiest, most exhaustive passage about the last judgment when he said, the Son of Man, that was his favorite referential title for himself, the Son of Man would come, sit on the throne of glory, and judge all the nations. John's Gospel, Jesus says in John 5, 
But the Father has given Christ authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. So dig in deep with me now. Why does the Father give the Lord Jesus this great role as the judge of all the world on the last day? Well, first, the first main reason why this role is given to him is to glorify the mediator. Christ's role as judge is an aspect of his exaltation. It's his reward for his obedience. After describing our Lord's state of humiliation even to the death on the cross, Peter's fellow apostle Paul said, because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. What a mighty display of Christ's glory that day will bring. His days of humiliation all in the past. His time of supreme exaltation has arrived. The man who was born in a filthy manger, hunted by Herod, despised and rejected by his own countrymen, suffered at the hands of wicked men, sped upon, beaten, crucified, now seated on a great white throne, surrounded by a vast army of angels, encircled with a great rainbow, with a countenance brighter than the sun. In this exalted presence, every knee will bow. Jesus will have gone from the bitter dregs of debasement and humiliation to the throne of universal judgment. What an incredible ascent. Before him, generals and popes and presidents and kings and all men of renown will bow as beggars in the dust. Jesus' judging of the whole world is the crowning honor of his kingship. And this is an important aspect of gospel preaching. All men need to be told that there is a time coming where the Messiah King will judge his enemies. Sinners must bow before those pierced feet in the present, or they'll be crushed like grapes in the winepress of Christ's wrath in the future. Another reason that Christ has given this office as judge on the last day. He alone is uniquely suited to judge all mankind because he's both God and man. The fact that he will judge the secret things of the heart is a great proof of his deity. Only God who's omniscient knows and remembers our secret sins, our innermost thoughts and motives. Only God can dispense such perfect judgment and justice on such a grand scale to billions of people. Only God has the authority to determine what is a righteous act and what is a wicked act. And only God has the judicial authority to sentence men to eternal death. But he's also human. Our Lord is uniquely qualified to judge humanity because he was tempted in all points like us, yet without sin. Men will never be able to say after the last judgment, that they were, they were judged by a detached, remote being that didn't know their weaknesses and temptations. Because Christ is a partaker of our humanity. He's bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He understands what it is to be a man. No person will ever be able to look back on that day and say that he who sat on the great white throne was too stern because he knew nothing of human weakness. There's a third reason why Jesus is uniquely suited to judge all mankind. Because he's the mediator of the covenant of grace. Throughout all of human history, after the fall, grace and mercy came through Christ. It's appropriate that the one who endured the shame 
and shed his own blood so that men might be reconciled to God should judge all people who reject his gospel. Everyone who rejects the vicarious suffering that our Savior endured deserves to be judged by the one they so coldly rejected. Everyone who rejected the Savior's message of peace must now endure the judge's words of wrath. Those who treated the word of the gospel with apathy or contempt will on that day be seized with horror and dread. Who will be judged? Look at what we're told in our text in verse 5. The Bible teaches at the final judgment, Jesus will judge the whole human race. That's what Peter is intending when he says in verse 5, the living and the dead. Think of our Lord's parable of the dragnet that Peter heard in Matthew 13. It says the wicked and the just will all be gathered, separated, and then judged by Christ. When Jesus tells it in Matthew 25, in that lengthiest, most exhaustive statement of the last judgment, he's very particular to repeatedly say that all men will stand before Jesus, and then when all are gathered there, every single one who's ever lived, then he will engage in the process of separation of sheep and goats. The account of John in the Revelation in Revelation 20 is especially clear on this issue. John writes, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book is open, which is the book of life, and all the dead were judged. All the dead, whether small or great, whether in the grave or in the bottom of the sea, are summoned to that judgment. Billions gathered before the footstool of the throne of God. A few reminders concerning the final judgment. The judgment, of course, is a public event. When Jesus returns, he returns in glory surrounded by the host of heaven. And as the judge, he will summon all mankind. The dead will arise at his call. And God has ordained that this day be public for a number of reasons. The first is... Its public nature will glorify Christ. Our Lord was publicly humiliated, publicly condemned as a criminal. He will be publicly exalted and vindicated before the entire human race. Every mouth will stop and every knee will bow on that day. There's another reason why it's public. God has decreed that the secrets of men, whether good or evil, will be exposed in a very public manner. Paul writes in Romans 2, he speaks of the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Every person will hear the story of his life published, in many cases to their everlasting shame. The public nature of this event is obviously intended to magnify the guilt and shame and dread of the occasion. But there's another reason why the day will be public. The public nature of the last judgment is a vindication of the saints. Not only will the covenant people witness the exposure and condemnation of their enemies, the persecutors of faithful Christians, the skeptics and mockers of the truth, on that day they will witness the exaltation of believers for their fruit of faith, the good works done in the body. It'll be a day when the tables are turned when the humble shall be exalted, when the meek shall inherit the earth, and the wicked and the proud shall be abased. And all who turned away from worshiping Christ will be publicly 
sentenced to an eternity under God's wrath. This judgment, of course, is, if you've not gathered this yet, is a judicial event. The whole scene that Jesus draws in Matthew 25 is one grand courtroom. There's a summons to which all must appear. There are spectators, the human race, and all the angelic host. And there's the judge, Jesus Christ. There's the examination of evidence whereby everyone outside of Christ is proclaimed guilty and those who believed are declared righteous based on the merits of Christ. There's the execution of the sentence. The wicked cast into the lake of fire, the righteous ushered into paradise. And with his pierced hand, Jesus will wave the unrepentant away. The same lips of Christ that pled with the multitudes to come to the wedding feast will now turn and say to the goats on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's something else that has to be said about the final judgment. The judgment brings an end to all rebellion against God forever. Human history has a terminus point, a time of reckoning. God has permitted a long age of rebellion. For thousands of years, God has shown patience and long-suffering to a wicked world. He's blessed the wicked even with common grace gifts like sunshine and rain and food and delights of every kind, beautiful beaches, lovely sunsets, family, friends, enjoyment, good food, laughter, and merriment. But on that day, all rebellion will be crushed. For the unrepentant, the good times are over. And so I say this to unbelieving people. Enjoy it now. Enjoy it all your sin now. Because that's the last enjoyment you will ever have. The judgment also means separation. Scripture repeatedly drives home the point that the final judgment, perhaps the most dominant characteristic of the final judgment, is that stark separation that's made forever. In Luke chapter 3, we're told of Jesus. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he'll thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. There are only two classes of people in the world in the sight of God, the wheat and the chaff, lost and saved. Now, when you and I look around, we, we classify people into all sorts of citizens. We look at the outward appearance, but the eye of God looks upon the heart. And tested by the state of the heart, there are only two classes into which people can be divided, converted and unconverted. We look and we see ethnic groups. We see language groups. We see thousands of distinctions. But God's eye divides into only two. Lost and saved. We saw it in Noah's day. There were two classes of people. Those inside the ark and those outside. Jesus speaks in these terms. Sheep and goats. Two eternal dwelling places. Heaven and hell. This is the way it is today. There are those who love Christ and obey him, and there are those who hate Christ and disobey him. There are those who are on the path that's straight and narrow, and there are those who are on the path that's broad and accommodating. But before Christ comes, separation is impossible. I can't read the hearts of men, and neither can you, and truly discern who truly belongs to Christ. But this is the wonder of the last judgment. Jesus will perfectly sort them out. When the Lord Jesus comes, he will... Punish those who are his enemies with a fearful punishment. 
all those who are found to be unrepentant and unbelieving, all who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, all who've clung to sin, all those who've loved the world and set their affection on things below, all who are without Christ, all will come to a terrible end. The punishment will be most severe. There's no pain like that of burning. If you doubt this, go home and put your finger in the flame of a candle for just a moment. Fire is the most destructive and devouring of all elements. Look into the mouth of a blast furnace and think what it would be like to be there. Of all elements, fire is the most opposed to life. Creatures can live in air and earth and water, but nothing can live in fire. But fire is the doom to which all Christless, unbelieving, wicked will come to. This punishment will never end. Millions of ages will pass away. And the fire into which the chaff is cast will burn on. The fire will never burn low, never become dim. The fuel will never be consumed. That's why Revelation calls it an unquenchable fire. Perhaps the saddest aspect for us to consider today is the division. The judgment will separate forever husbands from wives, parents from children, brother from brother. And you'll look across that great gulf that is fixed and you'll see on the other side that friend who sat next to you in church for decades, that sister who shared a room. What we have to say too about this judgment, because there are still people under the sound of my voice saying, I'll appeal. When Jesus says, depart from me, I will appeal. There has to be a higher court, right? No. The sentence uttered by Jesus will be irrevocable. All hope then will be replaced by despair, the blackness of darkness forever. There will never be anything again to look forward to. There will never dawn in hell a peaceful day, a lazy day. It is pain, torment, misery, degeneracy. And the order of the day, every day in hell, is rage. The gnashing of teeth, the seething tempest of hell will never calm down in remorse. Oh, how it will gnaw at men and women what they should have done, what they'll wish they had done. If I could go a day after the final judgment and say, what do you think now of the scriptures? What do you think now of opportunities for prayer or a Sabbath for worship? And I would be answered by groans and weeping. But the righteous, they'll enter into the joy of the Lord and behold the face of God. They'll live in blissful communion with Jesus and lean upon his breast forever. Once the verdict is spoken, there are no appeals. This is the highest court. There is no judge above the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be no second chances, no reprieves, no pardons. And so let me urge you, when Peter speaks of the final judgment, and that the judge is him who is ready. Look at verse 5. This is how Jesus is spoken of. It's not that he's saying, can I dodge this? Can I do something, anything besides enter into judgment? <coughs> Peter says, he's ready. And <coughs> So carefully settle it in your mind and hearts that the things I've been speaking about are real and true. This is not like a movie or a novel or a video game. Judgment Day, the last judgment. Heaven and hell, reward and punishment are the most certain realities there are. 
But think carefully, especially about these matters as they concern you. Many look on spiritual realities as things that don't concern them. These are people who are spectators in worship, not participants, and they feel that they can be a spectator at the judgment. And so heaven and hell won't really apply to them. They'll just duck out a side door and get in their car and drive home. If you're that type of person, always a spectator, never a participant. Let me assure you, your name is all through the scriptures. In fact, it is right here in our text. Because you will either be the living or the dead. Every time the scripture speaks of all men standing before Christ, your name is included. You will not be able to opt out and skip. Listen carefully to the words that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Your eternal destiny will either be eternal torment under the wrath of a just God or eternal happiness in worship, service, and fellowship with all the saints. Which will it be for you? Let's pray. Our Father, we're so deeply sobered by this reality that faces each one of us, that all of us will stand before Christ, your designated judge, the highest judge. And so, Lord, first of all, we ask that you'd give us a sober understanding of this, that we would make very sure that our calling and election is sure. And Lord, we would intercede for those in our family and our friends who are unregenerate, who are yet enemies of the gospel. Lord, perhaps even this week around a Thanksgiving table, give us opportunities to speak to them of the state of their soul and their need to flee to Christ alone. Lord, we pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. Cause us to walk gravely and seriously as those who must stand before an eternal judge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Trinity Psalter hymnal and turn now to Psalm 9b. Let's stand together as we sing Psalm 9b.
invite you immediately following the benediction to head that way with the crowds for some refreshments and then to our outstanding Sunday school classes. And then you'll want to be here about 545 to drop off your pie at the entrance door to the gym and then join us in worship at 6 p.m. And then stick around until the deacons chase us off late tonight after pie and coffee. Receive now the Lord's blessing and his benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.